Welcome back, everybody, to this Three Rivers talk show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Von Sayos, have to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh Pirates, and more. Today, we're going to be starting with the baseball side of things, looking at the Pittsburgh Pirates, as the regular season has officially came to an end for the Buccos, and in my opinion, it couldn't have ended soon enough. The Pirates finishing with a record of 62 and 100 so yet another 100 loss season it is their third consecutive that being if you elongate the 60 game covid season to a full 162 game calendar year that year would have had the pirates finishing 51 and 111 last season was 61 and 101 and then now this year 62 and 100 so with that in mind, the Pirates are in the top three for the new draft lottery. Of course, that being a new component of the CBA that the players and the owners agreed to. So the three teams that have the worst record all have a 16.5% chance of attaining the number one overall pick. Now... While that might be something that's thought of as a good thing for the Pirates franchise moving forward, it's not the state of where the Pirates should be right now. And I say that because only improving upon your record by one game over the course of a year is pathetic. You know, when they went from 2020 to 2021, and I said they went from 51 and 111 to 61 and 101 that was a 10 game improvement and i made mention you know obviously as the years progress that margin of improvement is going to get smaller and smaller but i did not expect it to go from an improvement of 10 games to an improvement of one game i mean that absolutely cannot happen and like i've said before Derek Shelton certainly did not help his case this season. That is 100% a fact. However, he was also dealt a terrible deck of cards, working with goons, for lack of better words, such as Josh Van Meter, Andrew Knapp. I mean, there were so many terrible players on this team's roster that stuck around well beyond when they should have. And it was frustrating to watch as a fan because everybody knew that they weren't a good baseball player. Everybody knew that they were never going to turn it around despite continuing to be given opportunities. I understand that, you know, the Pirates wanted to give these guys an opportunity to try and get going. I really get that. But if they're not going by end of June, beginning of July, when you've played two months of baseball, you've got to move on. I mean, this season was really supposed to be about letting the kids play. And when you have somebody like Josh Van Meter starting every day at second base or on the rare instance of sliding over to first, all you're doing at that point is blocking time from somebody like Rodolfo Castro 
who found himself at home at second base late in the season. When you have veteran outfielders, and I'm not saying Ben Gamble was part of the problem because he was a solid piece for the Pirates. But when you throw Josh Van Meter out in right field, you're limiting the amount of opportunities that you can get out of Jack Sawinski. Even though they didn't necessarily perform well, you're limiting the opportunities you had to see Cal Mitchell or Bly Madris. And as I said, that really hurt the Pirates because you're giving opportunities to players who don't deserve them. And it's something that is truly embarrassing to watch as a Pirates fan because this is something that nobody should have to deal with. I mean, what are we doing here? This is a team that has not sniffed the playoffs since 2019. And I say that because 2019 was the year they went on that 11-game win streak. Rather, 2018, I should say. 2018. 2018 was the year they went on the 11-game win streak right before the All-Star break. The Chris Archer trade happened. And to be quite honest, everything went to hell after that. Because that, that team collapsed, finished 82-79. and 2019 was a disaster. Bob Nutting cleaned house, and then 2020, Ben Charrington and company came in and started the rebuild. And while now it is a solid sight to see that, look, the Pirates finally have a direction of building from the ground up, you can build from the ground up and still have a competitive team at the major league level. Nobody's saying that you have to go out and spend $150 million in free agency and build a contender. Nobody's asking for that. But if this team would have stuck around in contention until August 15th, and maybe they finish 75 and 87, something along those lines, there would be hope that they can start to get better. And there would be hope that next year, is going to be an improvement year. Of course, we saw Ji-Hwan Bay really take off at the end of the season, whether it be at second base, whether it be in left field or center field. We saw a lot of solid things from him. O'Neal Cruz finally figured it out. Rodolfo Castro looking like a solid player late in the season. And then, of course, we had the usual... Brian Reynolds going out there, continuing to do what he does best. And on the pitching side, Luis Ortiz, I've already talked about him once a few weeks ago and how much of an impact he can have. Rowanzi Contreras looking solid as ever. Oviedo, piece from the Jose Quintona trade, has looked great. I don't want to say he's looked fantastic. He's had outings in which were solid. He's had outings that were iffy and then other outings that necessarily weren't the best but there's potential there there's something that you can build off of and that is what's going to help the pirates moving forward and they need now to move forward with those young pieces continuing to develop guys in the minor leagues and then also 
investing in free agency. Like I said, nobody's expecting Ben Charrington to go out in free agency and just throw money away to say we're spending money. No. But if the Pirates can go out and spend $45, $50 million, maybe even pushing $60 million in free agency, get the payroll up near $100 million, and then have a decent team out there. Okay, most of the owners in Major League Baseball and also Rob Manfred, none of them care about the economic disparity in baseball. None of them care about the fact that you have teams like the Dodgers and Yankees who can just spend at will, and then you have teams like the Pirates, the Guardians, and the Rays who have to scrounge around and hope for the best. Nobody cares about that. If anybody cared about that, they would have fought to keep the lockout going until a cap floor system was put in place. So if nobody cares about that and nobody's going to help you, you have to help yourself. Now, I am fully aware of the concept that spending money isn't a guarantee to be successful. I realize that. You have teams like the Angels who spend God knows how much on Mike Trout. They're going to pay Shohei Otani $30 million next season. And guess what? They're still not going to make the playoffs because they don't have a whole lot of talent outside of those two and Anthony Rendon. But they've spent buku bucks on Rendon, on Trout, on Otani, and they're still not good. So I realize that spending money doesn't necessarily equate to success. But what it does is it gives you an opportunity, more of an opportunity, to be successful. It gives you the opportunity to go out there and be more competitive, win more games. And right now, that's what the Pirates need. The Pirates need to be able to go out there, be more competitive, win more games, and then as the prospects start to rise from AAA Indianapolis, incorporate them into the mix. And when you incorporate them, then they take the team to the next level. The Pirates are not in a state, nor is any team for that matter, where you can strictly rely on the draft to produce a successful major league team. Don't get me wrong. You can have a few, maybe even up to seven or eight talented prospects that you drafted, developed, and produced in your system. However, this isn't like other leagues where you can have a team predominantly made up of your own players that you drafted, developed, and turned into something. Baseball's not like that. You're going to have to bring in free agents. You're going to have to sign experienced veterans that got drafted by Team A, traded to Team B, Team B develops them, and then that player spends four years with Team B, and then now you're Team C picking them up in free agency. That's the way baseball works. And so that's what the Pirates have to start doing. You have to go out there and start pulling guys that aren't just, for lack of better words, scrubs. 
You have to find guys that are going to go out there and help you compete, like Jose Quintana. I realize Jose Quintana was supposed to be a reclamation project. And Jose Quintana was not only a reclamation project, he was a solid starter in the Pirates rotation. But as far as production goes, the Pirates got everything out of Jose Quintana that they wanted to. They got what they were hoping for to then turn around and trade him at the deadline. So if that's the case, that's where the Pirates' next move is. You have to go out and bring in guys like Jose Quintana who are going to elevate your team to the next level, but then not turn around and trade them at the deadline. Of course, if there's an offer on the table that cannot be refused, then by all means, you have to deal them. But it seems like where the Pirates are at and where they have been, they are trading guys just to trade them. For instance, Daniel Vogelback traded at the deadline. Now, mind you, he was only on a one-year, $1 million contract. Traded at the deadline to the New York Mets for Colin Holderman. Now, Holderman wasn't necessarily a bad piece. Not necessarily a good piece either. Had a 381 ERA over the course of the season. But that's where I have this idea. You know, the Pirates are just trading people like Vogelback just to trade them. Not that the Pirates could have necessarily gotten anything better than Holderman for Daniel Vogelback. But... I mean, if he's only making $1 million, what was the urgency to try and trade him? There was none. And Holderman's stats were much worse in Pittsburgh than they were in New York. And that was with less games played in Pittsburgh, less innings pitched. His ERA in New York over 15 games was a 2.04 ERA. In nine games with the Pirates, a 6.75 ERA in 10 and two-thirds innings. Now, there were a lot of scenarios where Colin Holderman got the short stick out of the basket because he would go out there, produce an inning, and Derek Shelton would try to send him out for a second inning and he just couldn't get outs in that second inning. So in that regard, his ERA ballooned largely as a pirate. So I also blame Derek Shelton for that in not knowing his players, not knowing that some guys are only good for an inning. But getting back to the original point, while the Pirates may not necessarily have been able to get more for Daniel Vogelback than they did, 
they didn't need to trade him at that time either because Vogelback was helping the offense significantly. And he was providing pop in the Pirates lineup. You know, and just like when they traded Jose Quintana and Chris Stratton, because both pitchers went to St. Louis. Now, at the same time, I personally think that Chris Stratton was just thrown into the trade just so the Pirates could get rid of him because Chris Stratton was quite worthless this season before he got dealt. But again, the Pirates didn't necessarily have to trade Jose Quintana. And while Oviedo has been good, and the Pirates got another piece in their minor league system, Malcolm Nunez, there still wasn't a need, a desperate need, to trade Jose Quintana. Jose Quintana, at least in public interviews, said that he loved being in Pittsburgh. You know, he wasn't the goon like Gerard Dyson, who came right out and said, I only signed my contract because there really wasn't a whole lot out there. Jose Quintana actually seemed to enjoy himself. Maybe because he could just go out there and pitch freely without having any added pressure, courtesy of being on a team like the Pirates. That may have been the case, but it allowed Jose Quintana to be himself, and the Pirates got the best of Jose Quintana. There's no reason why the Pirates couldn't have kept Quintana, used the second half of the season to try and set up a an extension for Jose Quintana, or if an extension couldn't be agreed upon between the two, then you just say right then and there, we'll be in touch with you once the offseason and free agency begin because we are very much interested. If Quintana and his agent aren't interested at that point, then you move on and you try to find somebody else. But things might work out in the offseason. You might be able to then move in free agency and bring back Quintana, maybe on a longer contract and on a contract that is worth more money to then make the team better in terms of what Quintana is going to go out there and do. And then also in the aspect that Quintana is going to get paid more, so he's going to be just as happy. But apparently all of that makes too much sense. The main idea, though, is that the Pirates absolutely have to get better. Now is the time for Ben Charrington this offseason, once it starts, to prove that he is very much a believer in making this team better and things seriously need to change in terms of the players the Pirates have on their roster or else it's going to be much of the same next year as it was in a very frustrating season throughout April all the way up until last week. Rather, just a few days ago. But the point still stands that the Pirates have to get better and they have to get better this offseason. You're listening to the you're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we return, we'll be discussing the latest around the NFL with week four coming up right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show live on BBN Online Radio.
We're back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show discussing the latest now around the NFL. Once again, joined by Dylan Bazika. Dylan, welcome back, and uh, how are you feeling right now? I'm not doing so good, man. <laughs> that Bronco game last night got me. Oh, it's got me in a bad mood. Well, to uh, hopefully make things a little better, we'll start with looking at week four again and, you know, some of the big games out of week four. So what were some of the maybe most intriguing games that you saw in week four maybe an upset that you liked um well when an upset i saw was the falcons beating the browns now the falcons played a very good game mariota only threw for 140 but the defense for the falcons really came up big against the browns offense now i was very surprised because cleveland's mostly a run heavy offense chubb only got the ball 19 times and Kareem only got it 10 times. Kareem had 10 rushes for 49 yards, and Nick Chubb had 19 for, one eight, for 118. Like, they had Brissett throwing 35 passing attempts. That should not happen for Cleveland. Like, they should just keep running the ball with Hunt and Chubb, and I think they won that game. But Falcons defense came up big in the fourth quarter, picking off Brissett to end the game. But how about the Jets going into Ashesire Stadium and upsetting the Steelers. What were your thoughts on that game? You just had to bring that up, didn't you? Yeah, we've got to talk about it. I mean, I'll touch on this more later, too. But to be quite honest, I had a gut feeling that the Steelers were going to lose that game. I mean, it didn't matter that it was at home at Acrisure Stadium. I really didn't think that that was going to have any sort of effect. I knew that with Zach Wilson making his debut... The fact that they have Brees Hall, Michael Carter. I mean, Zach Wilson's a mobile quarterback. He can run the ball. Mm -hmm. And when you have a talented receiver in Garrett Wilson, I knew it was going to be difficult, especially when Levi Wallace didn't play. And Witherspoon didn't, Did Witherspoon play? I think Witherspoon played. He didn't get as many snaps as he usually does. Mm -hmm. But it was a very depleted secondary for the Steelers. And I knew that... Things were already bad defensively because, for some reason, this defense can't get any quarterback pressures without T.J. Watt. And the fact that the Steelers' offense continued to do what it do, what it's done for the first two games, three games, that is, and then half of the Jets game before Tomlin finally decided to make the change. And I just – I knew that even at halftime it was – pretty much too little too late and the Jets were going to come out on top yeah and it sucked for the Steelers too Minka getting hurt that game Cam Hayward got hurt I think um your D lineman what's his name shoot your D tackle got hurt and that mm -hmm. really hurt y'all in the second half because I don't think they came back and played at all but well Hayward's injury and Minka's thankfully were at the very end of the game, in mm -hmm. inside two minutes, because, of course, that hurt the Steelers with having to burn timeouts. But mm -hmm. I don't think their injuries are anything too big, at least to my knowledge. Yeah, I just uh, saw um, Tom Pelissero tweet. He said Minka and Hayward are off the fully participate in practice today, and they're going to play Sunday. So that's, a good, that's some good news for the Steelers' defense right there. Absolutely. I mean, we certainly need Hayward. We certainly need... Minka, I mean, now Deontay Johnson is on the injury report, the hip injury. Mason Cole's limited with a foot injury. 
secondary is still beat up. This game, this game Sunday might be rough. I'm not even going to lie. I know it won't be as bad as the uh, Thursday night game last night. It won't be as bad as that. But how about, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Kenny Pickett's uh, debut last Sunday? See, for me, I think Kenny Pickett did well in the aspect of coming in, providing a spark for the offense, getting them going. Because, to be quite honest, Mitch Trubisky hadn't done that through the first three and a half games. And for Pickett to be able to go out there, lead that offense, pick up multiple rushing touchdowns in the process, that's certainly a sight to see. And, of course, the only three incomplete passes he had were the three interceptions, the one deflecting off of Claypool's hands, mm-hmm. the one deflecting off of Friermuth's hands, and then, that Hail Mary and then the Hail Mary at the very end. And both Claypool and Friermuth admitted after the game mm-hmm. that they should have done something differently to avoid the interception. Friermuth's I'm not necessarily as upset about because the ball was thrown a little bit high. He went up for it, tried to make the play, highlight real grab along the sideline. And like I said, I'm not too mad about that one. But the fact that Claypool is 6'4", 240 pounds, got out-jumped by a defensive back who is 5'8", and basically just pushed the ball into his hands, I mean, that's unacceptable. And, I mean, like I said, I'm only 5'9", myself. But for Claypool to get out-jumped by somebody who is 8 inches shorter, I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, that's crazy. The Hail Mary, the interception on the Hail Mary at the end, I mean, I'm not blaming Pickett for that. I mean, obviously, he still threw the interception, but at that point, it was do or die for the Steelers. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's there's a lot to look forward to about Pickett. Everybody on the offense was extremely happy with the way that Pickett kind of came in and showed a lot of maturity, showed a lot of leadership in his first game. And so... For me, I think it's a strong sign moving forward. It's certainly going to be interesting this weekend going into Buffalo, but Pickett's got to be thrown into the fire, and when you go up against the number one defense in the NFL like Buffalo has, that's as good of a test as ever. Yeah, I thought Pickett did. I'm not a huge Kenny Pickett fan, but I thought he did play well. I mean, for rookie Q to be going out there completing all them pass, short passes, getting them completions, the O-line played excellent for Pickett. Didn't give up no sacks at all for Pickett. Barely got any pressure. The Jets defense barely got any pressure on him in the second half. And like you said, he got them two rushing touchdowns. Now, yeah, it was nice, but it were only from like inside the three-yard line he got those. And if it wasn't for Minka Fitzpatrick picking off Zach Wilson, he wouldn't have one of those. I mean, absolutely. I think Minka Fitzpatrick definitely helped the Steelers get into that position. And provide the offense with a little bit of a spark but at the same time though that's what your defense is for make plays to get your offense back out there on the field and I think for Pickett getting those touchdowns certainly boosted his confidence I mean at the end of the day Mitch Trubisky doesn't make those plays oh no I mean one of the biggest highlights that I saw from Pickett in that game. And this may have even been one on the drive that set up his first rushing touchdown when he threw the strike over the middle of the field 
dealt with pressure in his face, got knocked down in the process, and still delivered the pass. That was a beautiful I mean, pass. That is a that's a veteran style play being made right there by a guy who didn't even get any first team reps since maybe training camp. Mm-hmm. And you know, I get there's going to be people who are out there saying, "Well, I'd like to hope he can make that play." He's 24 years old, but I mean, people people didn't say that when Joe Burrow came into the league, and oh, Burrow no. was very much the same age. So. If you're not going to say it about Burrow, why is it being brought up now with Pickett? Yeah, I don't understand that at all. I don't know why people are saying that about Pickett. I mean, it's his first game playing. Like, mm-hmm. I thought he played very well for his first game. And like you said, getting no first-team reps at all, just running with the second team, maybe flipping with Rudolph a little bit and going with the threes. But, yeah, I thought he played very well. But it's going to be a tough test uh, come Sunday for the when you go into Buffalo and play the Bills. Yeah, I'm certainly – Certainly not looking forward to that one. I mean, you know it's going to be bad when the Steelers enter a game as 14-point underdogs. Yeah, that's the first time, I think, in a while that an NFL team has been underdog by uh, 14 points. Yeah, and the Steelers of all teams, I don't think the Steelers have been a 14-point underdog in 50-something years. Uh, not in my memory. I don't think they have been, ever. I think the I remember seeing the last time the Steelers were at least a 14-point underdog was a Super Bowl. I think it was maybe, I think it was in the 90s. It was the one they lost to Dallas. Mm. That was the last time they were at least a 14-point underdog. So maybe not necessarily, obviously not in the last 50 years, but Definitely in my lifetime, they have never been a 14-point underdog. And for them to go into Buffalo with that on their head, certainly providing them a little bit of motivation, but at the same time, it's also not looking good for them. And, you know, I I get maybe Vaughn Miller's probably just trying to call Kenny Pickett's bluff a little bit, you know, talking about, oh, who looks at the, who looks at the odds, that kind of thing, before a game. But, I mean, Vaughn Miller's not stupid. He knows that Buffalo is the better team, both on paper and oh, yeah. with the record. So, I mean, I think at that point, it's just a matter of, like I said, him just trying to mess with Pickett. But yep. getting the Pickett's head. To, I mean, at that point, he's just making himself seem ignorant because, I mean, everybody knows that. To be quite honest, everybody knows Buffalo's going to curb stomp us. If we get out, if the Steelers get out of that game, losing by thirteen or less points. I honestly would not be too upset. But at the same time, I also feel like Buffalo is going to go in, or we're going to go into Buffalo, and the Bills are going to put up 45 on our defense. You think so, 45? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, if if you look at the – I mean, the Bills' offense has been dynamic to this point. I get that they didn't necessarily score a whole lot against Miami, but they put up 23 on the Ravens. Was nineteen against against Miami, and then it was forty one against Tennessee, thirty one against the Rams, and right now, especially with T.J. Watt being hurt, I take any one of those defenses over the Steelers' defense. So maybe not necessarily forty five. That might have been a bit of an exaggeration, but I definitely see Buffalo 
putting up at least 30. Yeah, I feel like like the mid mid to low 30s for the Buffalo, and I think y'all will get 21. I think you'll score 21 points. Like you'll probably score 14 garbage time points in the fourth, just to try and cover a little bit. But like you said, now switching over to the Bills and Ravens game, that game. Baltimore just blew that game. Did you watch that game on Sunday? I didn't watch it entirely, but I saw some clips. Yeah, in the fourth quarter, Baltimore, I can't believe they did this. With like under two minutes left, it's 20 to 20. Fourth and fourth and two. Now, if you're hardball, I'd kick the field goal, okay? No. Now, no, you're at Buffalo's 22. Yeah, Buffalo's 22. And you have the best kicker in NFL history in Justin Tucker. That's easy three points. Yeah. But he trusts his quarterback and expected Lamar to make the play. But Buffalo's defense was not fooled, stopped the Ravens, and ended up running the clock out and kicking a field goal to win that game. I mean, at the very least, like you said, you know, John Harbaugh should have kicked the field goal. I mean, what's the point in having the best kicker in the league if you're not going to use him in that situation, because then now, yes, you're giving the ball back to Buffalo and Josh Allen, but as long as you don't give up a touchdown at the very least, the game goes to overtime. Mm -hmm. Yes. You still might lose in overtime. Yes. Buffalo might get the ball in the opening possession, have a cakewalk down the field and have Allen find digs in the back of the end zone to ultimately lose the game for Baltimore. But you're still giving your team the best chance to win by going out and kicking that field goal and putting the pressure on Buffalo to, at the very least, counter it before the clock runs out. I saw that, and then I've got filled in afterwards, but I saw on Twitter the video going viral of Marcus Peters getting in John Harbaugh's face and being quite angry. And I remember sitting there watching and thinking, what is he so bent out of shape about? And then I went back, looked at how the game played out, and was kind of able to put the pieces together. But at the same time, I mean, now, in my opinion, John Harbaugh needs to do something with Marcus Peters because you can't let one of your players get away with doing that on not national television, but regional television because that game was regionally televised mm -hmm. you can't let one of your players get away with yelling in your face like that on the sidelines after a game and then having the video of it go viral on social media i mean john harbaugh has to make a statement whether it's benching peters suspending him i mean he's, he's got to do something well, i mean i get it from peters though because like like i said they should have just kicked the field goal get up 23-20 and then put faith in the defense. Now, I know the defense has not played well, but on Sunday, the defense played a lot better than they have all year with Marlon Humphrey getting a pick six from the first drive, and then they got two sacks on Allen. They played much better than the weeks before, but I can see where, I mean, it's probably the heat of the moment too, but I don't think, I think him and Harbaugh got to an understanding after, and I think, there's going to be no punishment toward Peters. At least I, I wouldn't do it because that's one of your – that's your second-best corner on the team. Would you really want to bench him going into next week? I mean, you never really want to bench 
any of your players, but sometimes it's one of those things where you have to do what you have to do. And, you know, I get maybe it was the heat of the moment. I get maybe they came to an understanding after the game, but I don't, I don't ever see a circumstance where it's justifiable to make a scene like that, not only on the field, but also in the face of your head coach, and especially one that has been very successful the way that John Harbaugh has. I mean, he's won a Super Bowl before. He's established himself as a top-tier coach in the league. And, you know, I think maybe Marcus Peters shouldn't get benched, but, I mean, they have to. I think something should be done because, I mean, if nothing gets done, then all that's going to tell Marcus Peters is every time something doesn't go our way or I question one of his decisions, I can scream in his face again. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's something that John Harbaugh needs to shut down now and avoid that from happening again. Because, yeah, Marcus Peters was in his face and was only screaming this time. But what's to say the next time he doesn't go out and try and push John Harbaugh? Or try to throw a punch. I mean, at that point, anything's on the table. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so, and like you said, I mean, with Baltimore hosting Cincinnati this week, they You're probably don't want, yeah, you probably don't want to bench Marcus Peters. But, I mean, it's certainly going to be an interesting dynamic there. And, I mean, like you said, nothing will probably happen to Marcus Peters. But I think at the very least... They've got to work something out because he can't continue to do that. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I think they will. I think I saw water under the bridge now. Mm-hmm. I think it will be all right. And then how about also in week four, that Seahawks-Lions game? I mean, first of all, nobody in that game wanted to play defense. No, defense was non-existent in that game. <clears throat> but in a way, I credit the Lions for going out there, being able to put up 45 and trying to make a game of it because it was 38-23 Seattle at the end of the third quarter. And the Lions, they went out and put up 22 in the fourth quarter. And Detroit, they haven't necessarily gotten a lot of help defensively this season, but their offense is no joke. I mean, You score 35 against the Eagles and lose. You score 36 against the Commanders and win. You score 24 against Minnesota and lose. And then you score 45 against Seattle and lose. I mean, it's a very rare sight to see for a team to go out there and put up 24 or more points and lose a game. I mean, I think Detroit right now currently has the... Highest scoring offense in the NFL. Yeah, they have one of the highest scoring offense. And the crazy part is they were without two of their best players on offense. DeAndre Swift was out with an ankle injury. And Amon Ross St. Brown, their number one receiver, was out with an ankle injury. And all them people on the Detroit offense really stepped up. Jamal Williams, the backup running back, had 19 carries for 108 yards and two touchdowns. Hawkinson had a phenomenal game. Eight catches for 180 and two touchdowns. And Jared Goff. Everyone that was saying Jared Goff was not a good QB, they're insane. 
I would gladly take Jared Goff for Denver right now. I would trade Russell Wilson right now for Jared Goff after the performance he had last night. Goff had 378 yards and four touchdowns against a eh, mediocre-ish Seattle defense, mm-hmm. but they did not give up at all. That offense is legit. The defense is where they really got Detroit. The defense has failed them multiple times, like the Vikings game. They were up 24 to, I think, 21. Defense blew that game for the Lions. It's a disgrace. Against the Eagles, again, defense blew it against the Eagles. And it just – Detroit's way better than record. They're 1-3. and three. They should be at least – I'm going to say they should be 3-1. and one. Yeah, I would argue they could be 3-1 and one right yeah. now. And it's just something that – Dan Campbell really has to fix with the defense. And, I mean, like you said, the offense can only do so much. Jared Goff, I always felt that way about Jared Goff. Yes, he may have struggled a little bit at times in Los Angeles. Maybe he wasn't the guy to take them to the Super Bowl like Matt Stafford was and ultimately help them win a Super Bowl. But Jared Goff was often not given enough credit in Los Angeles and often looked at poorly simply because he was a number one overall pick and didn't go out there and lead the Rams to three Super Bowls in four years because for some reason people have this unrealistic expectation that if a quarterback doesn't do that and they're taking number one overall, then they're a bust. But I did want to ask you, you mentioned about... As of right now, wanting to trade Wilson for Goff, would you do that trade straight up, or would you make that? Would you make Detroit throw in more? I make Detroit throw in more, obviously. <laughs> but if I had a time machine, I would go back to March of this past year and pray to God, George, pray to George Payton that we do not do that trade. I would rather have Drew Locke at QB right now because I guarantee you, Drew Locke hits the KJ Hamler wide open in overtime. Guarantee it. He'll throw that ball to freaking Stephon Gilmore, who was a defensive player of the year and was kind of locking down Sutton all day. It was uncalled yeah. for. Wilson, you can't even blame Hackett anymore. Hackett, yes, you can blame him for the week one, the poor clock management and everything, but he's fixed that. Now, he had a couple questionable play calling, but this is going to happen with the first-year head coach. But Russell Wilson cost us that game last night on third and four under, well, a little bit under Three minutes left in the fourth quarter. Third and four. We're at, Indian, uh, at Indy's 20-yard line. All you got to do is run the ball. They have no more timeouts. Run the ball. What does Russell Wilson do? Throws it. Throws it right to Stephon Gilmore. Pick. They go down, kick the field goal. Overtime. All right? So, we get in overtime. Russell Wilson. Or they go down, they kick the field goal. Defense comes up big, holds them to a field goal. Mm-hmm. Fourth and one. Now, granted, Russell, or not Russell Wilson, Melvin Gordon was running the ball great in overtime, averaging about like six to seven yards a carry. Fourth and one. You you throw it on fourth and one. I don't know. I don't agree with that, that play call. I say run it right up the middle. Offensive line blocked amazing that, that drive, blocked phenomenally. All you got to do, hand it off to Russell or Melvin Gordon. He can get the one yard. If not, push him in. You can get it. What does he do? They, th- they ran the same play that Seattle ran in the Super Bowl against New England 
with Tyler Lockett coming with a cross, a slant, and got picked by Malcolm Butler. Ran that same play. Judy takes the corner away from Hamler. Hamler runs a slant wide open. What does Russell Wilson do? Doesn't even look at K.J. Hamler. Throws it right to Cortland Sutton. He was getting smothered by Stephon Gilmore. Game over. Unacceptable. Russell Wilson has played terrible. This is not the Russell Wilson that people are used to knowing at all. He has to step it up because this is uncalled for. I almost have to wonder if maybe recognizing the fact that it was the same play call of that game against New England in the Super Bowl, maybe Russell Wilson didn't have a little bit of PTSD. I think he did. I think he he did. He didn't want to throw it to K.J. Hamler because he knew that he was probably going to well. It wasn't obviously going to have the same result because K.J. Hamler, like you said, could have walked into the end zone. After the game, he said to Tom Pelissier, he's like, yeah, I could have walked in the end zone. That's how open I was. But I truly think it was some PTSD there with the play call and not wanting Russell Wilson not wanting to be the one who ultimately cost them the game by making a poor throw, but he ended up costing them the game anyways. And I just, I think that game was certainly not an outlier this season for Russell Wilson. I mean, I understand the fact that, you know, Denver wanted an upgraded quarterback over Drew Locke. I completely understand that because Drew Locke hasn't gotten it done, whether it was Locke or Bridgewater as the Broncos quarterback, every year, 7-9, and 6-10, and 10, somewhere around there. There was no improvement. There was no development from either of those guys, so you have to go out and bring in an upgrade. But before he even takes a snap, you're giving him a $245 million contract? For what? I mean, I get he's done well in the past, but that was with a different team in an entirely different offense, yep. and now he's working with new receivers, and you're going to hand him $245 million before he even takes a snap? And like you said, just it's poor management at that point and Russell Wilson hasn't deserved it you know we talked about before we got on air for the segment about Kyle Brandt's comments this morning on NFL Network and one of the the quote that really stuck out to me most from that little outburst if you will was that Kyle Brandt said I don't know when Russell Wilson turned into Mitch Trubisky Mm -hmm. and First of all, as a Steeler fan, I didn't need to be attacked when my team didn't even play last night. Not that he was wrong, but, I mean, can you leave the Steelers out of it for a second? Uh, and then then I got to thinking about it more, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, wow, he's right. Because I very easily could have seen Mitch Trubisky in that same scenario, and Mitch Trubisky would have made the same read that Russell Wilson did because not only did Russell Wilson make that read, he never even looked no, at K.J. Hamler. He didn't even look. just locked in on Sutton the whole time. And that's what Mitch Trubisky did the first three and a half weeks. He locked in to either Najee Harris checking out of the backfield or he locked in to Fryermuth on the sidelines. Those were the only two players that really were the top targets for Mitch Trubisky because he locked in on them. And, you know, I've brought it up before. In the New England game, it was a third and eight. Fryermuth, seam route, right up the middle, wide open. What does Mitch Trubisky do? Checks it down to Najee Harris running an out route from the backfield. 
who has lined up to Trubisky's left. Najee Harris gets two yards on the reception, and it brings up fourth and six, and the Steelers have to punt. And that was late, later in the game as well. If all he has to do is look Fireman's way and hit him in the numbers, that keeps the drive alive, and the Steelers could, could possibly keep going. Now, given Trubisky's history with the Steelers, that drive very well could have stalled out on the next set of downs, but it at least gives you some life and lets you move the chains. But... Like you said, I mean, Russell Wilson just hasn't been himself this season. And I don't know if it's because of being in a new offense or if we're just starting to see the decline of Russell Wilson. And plus, he's not playing like himself. He's like normally making more plays with his legs. He was barely doing that last night. In the last couple of weeks, he's more standing in the pocket, just throwing. Russ, you're not known for doing that. You're known for making plays with your legs. Now, he ran a couple of times last night, and it looked awesome. Looks like he still got it. But, Russ, you have to use your legs more. That's yeah. why we're paying you $245 million. We want the Russell Wilson that had MVP seasons the last couple of years. And, mm-hmm. and it's sad, too, because the defense played phenomenal. Could not ask better. S- sacked Matt Ryan six times last night. Two picks. Got two picks, and Matt Ryan fumbled. Well, they fumbled four times. Forcing four fumbles and two turnovers. What more could you want for the defense? Defense played phenomenal. Like it's it just it's sad to waste a great defensive performance like we had last night, and then we just blow the game against the Colts. And it's the first game ever in NFL history. Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreit said this on the commentary last night. It's the first time in NFL history that both QBs have more than four Pro Bowls, did not score a single touchdown at all. First time in NFL history. That is insane. Yeah, that's absolutely insane. And you can't even sit there and say, well, it was raining, it was windy. No, it was a beautiful night. Yeah. Clear skies, everything. It was a beautiful night in Denver. Beautiful. Yeah. You couldn't use the weather as an excuse. How about just two minutes ago, both Ian Rappaport, Tom Pelissero reporting that Andy Dalton once again starting for the Saints this week against Ooh. the Seahawks. No Jameis Winston. Did not practice at all this week. And... Head coach of the Saints, Dennis Allen, turning to Andy Dalton once again. Yeah, Dalton, I mean, he did play good last last week against the Vikings. He looked very promising, but I don't know about that. But the whole Saints QB room is just a mess right now. Cause, but, hey, I mean, if you think Andy Dalton's the best guy, I mean, put him out there. Put the best player in to make your team look better, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, if he's if he's the one that's healthy, that's who you got to go with. Yeah. And Michael Thomas is out too, still without their number one weapon too. Yeah, that that'll certainly make things more difficult for Dalton. But you know, again, Dalton's one of those quarterbacks, just like Jared Goff, where yes, he wasn't necessarily this stellar arm, but he was a decent NFL quarterback and did not get the credit he deserved in Cincinnati. No, he didn't. And they were very quick to move on from him because of the thought of being able to get Joe Burrow. And don't get me wrong, Burrow has done very well. Took his team to a Super Bowl. But at the same time, though, the talent that Joe Burrow has around him is much greater than the talent that Andy Dalton ever had around him. Because Andy Dalton had A.J. Green. Aside from A.J. Green... You had, and you had Tyler Boyd, too. Yeah, he did have Tyler Boyd. But Tyler Boyd then isn't the Tyler Boyd oh, now. Oh, no, no. Not at all. So Tyler Boyd was still developing. 
And then aside from A.J. Green, who dealt with some injuries throughout his entire career, the next the next best receiver was it Golden not Golden Tate, Auden Tate. I mean And they had Genovi Bernard too. I was good yeah. receiving back for him as well. But like I said, he didn't have the weapons that Joe Burrow does now. And the fact that then you can you then reunite Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase on top of Tyler Boyd continuing to improve. And T. Higgins emerging too. Yeah. On top of T. Higgins coming out of Clemson and being great right away. I mean, it was evident that the Bengals offense was going to be dynamic. They just need an offensive line that knows what they're doing to protect yeah. Joe Burrow. Yeah. I mean, Andy Dalton did have an O-line. That's the only difference between Dalton and Burrow. Dalton had a, a very good offensive line now. If they could only get – if only Joe Burrow and them could get a good O-line behind them, whew, that would seem to be very nice. Absolutely. That would certainly make things more interesting in the AFC North. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we return, we're discussing – Pitt Panthers football, and speaking of disappointments, the Panthers are one of their own after losing to Georgia Tech. We'll be back here in just a few minutes live on the Bethany Online Radio.
back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show, looking now at Pitt football. As I mentioned before the break, being a disappointment of their own, just like the Steelers, who they share a facility with, not only practice facility, but also Akersher Stadium. The Panthers losing to the Yellow Jackets 26-21 last Saturday at Akersher Stadium. I mean, that just, it simply can't happen. Because Pitt went into that game 3-1, and one. Georgia Tech was 1-3, and three, and it was just simply a disaster. I get that the weather last Saturday in the Panhandle area wasn't necessarily the greatest, and it was very rainy. I get that that impacted how football games were played. I witnessed it firsthand here on campus for our homecoming game. But that still does not justify why Georgia Tech is beating Pitt. When you have a quarterback with the talent of Keaton Slovis, who threw for 305 yards, three touchdowns, and still didn't necessarily play his best, he was certainly part of the problem, but he wasn't the entire problem. You have Vincent Davis running for 80 yards on 15 carries. Izzy Abanacanda, 31 yards on 10 carries. Honestly, rather shocking to see Abanacanda not have more yards with that amount of rushing attempts. I honestly would have expected Abanacanda to be up near 45, maybe even pushing 50 yards because of how well he's done to this point. Jared Wayne leading the receivers with six receptions for 89 yards. However, Jared Wayne did not find the back of the end zone. It was Jaden Bradley who had a pair of touchdowns and Gavin Bartholomew with the third touchdown from Keaton Slovis. But on the flip side, Georgia Tech took the more traditional aspect when it came to a game in the rain. As their quarterback, Jeff Sims, only threw the ball 26 times, which is still a decent amount, but not necessarily as much as Keaton Slovis throwing the ball 45 times, only 102 yards with one touchdown. And Jeff Sims still had a better QB rating than Keaton Slovis. However, you had Sims running the ball 19 times for 81 yards with a score. You had Georgia Tech's main running back, Hassan Hall, absolutely tearing apart Pitt's defense. 20 carries for 157 yards. Honestly, a bit surprised that Hall never found the back of the end zone himself. But it was embarrassing for the Panthers. The fact that Sims throws one touchdown, runs in a second himself. The one he threw was to EJ Jenkins. So offensively, 
Georgia Tech only scored two touchdowns, kicking field goals in the process to ultimately help them win four field goals. But it's still pathetic that it came down to that, and that was how the Panthers lost. Pitt should have had that game put away well before it came down to Georgia Tech trying to close out the game. Pitt should have very easily gone into that fourth quarter ahead by seven or ahead by ten, scored one more touchdown, put themselves ahead two or three scores, and then went to cruise control, then on out, and walked away with the win. I just, I seriously can't believe still that that game ended the way it did because Keaton Slovis just did not perform the way that he should have. And at the end of the game, just like we were talking about last segment with Russell Wilson not necessarily making a good read, Keaton Slovis doing much of the same for Pitt late in the game that could have ultimately been the game-winning touchdown. And it was very audible on the Panthers' sideline where you had many, many teammates yelling and telling Keaton Slovis to throw the ball. That is something that almost never happens at the college level where your sideline, especially players, are yelling to tell you to throw the ball and tell you who to throw it to. I mean, that says something right there. Either the team has lost trust in Keaton Slovis or lost trust in him in that game, or they have never rated him very highly and the frustrations just continue to mount in that game against Georgia Tech. Whatever it may be, it was still embarrassing that that's how the game ended for Pitt. Because now you're 3-2 and two overall, 0-1 in conference play. Pitt's not even ranked anymore in the top 25. And it's an uphill battle to climb for the Panthers in the ACC Coastal. There are four teams in the entire ACC that are ranked. All four of them are in the Atlantic Division. Clemson, Syracuse, Wake Forest, and NC State. Now, Obviously, nobody's surprised about Clemson being ranked because Clemson is Clemson. Syracuse is a perfect 5-0 and 2-0 in conference play. Wake Forest is still a solid football team. They're 4-1 and 1-1 in the Atlantic. NC State, yes, they lost their conference opener, but that was their first loss of the season. So the Atlantic Division is a very tough division for college football in the ACC. And then you have 
the Coastal, where, yes, there are some top teams like Duke, UNC, but Pitt should be up there as well. And in terms of overall record, they're not far behind Duke and UNC. But it's the conference record that sell. It's the difference right now because Pitt just decides they want to lose to Georgia Tech. And Pitt shouldn't have lost to Georgia Tech. So now Pitt's in a predicament where they dropped a game they should have won. You have to find a way to start over essentially for tomorrow's game because you're hosting Virginia Tech in what's going to be another tough game. Virginia Tech is Virginia Tech. They're always good. And it's going to be a game that Pitt could very well lose if they play like they did against Georgia Tech. I've already talked about Pitt's defense needing to step it up. And the only good game defensively that Pitt's defense had was against Western Michigan. And now Georgia Tech putting up 26 is terrible. Pitt's defense continues to show that they are a major part of the problem. Yes, Keaton Slovis and the Panthers offense didn't help matters last weekend, but the defense as a whole is not where it needs to be, especially in the run game. You cannot have individuals rushing for 150 yards on you in a game and thinking you have a chance to win. Yes, it's likely, well, I shouldn't say likely, it's possible that you could still win with that happening. But the odds of it are very slim because if a running back is tacking on that many yards, that means your defense isn't getting off the field. If your defense isn't getting off the field, your offense isn't on the field. So it's a very unlikely scenario that you can win a game if a running back is accumulating that many yards. And Pitt very much deserved to lose Saturday night because they could not stop the run. They haven't been able to stop the run for much of this season. It's the same problems that continue to haunt Pitt. Nothing changes, and Pat Narduzzi expects a different result. Now, if that final drive ended differently and Keaton Slovis throws the game-winning touchdown pass when his teammates were yelling and telling him to throw it, if that ends up hitting the back of the end zone, this is a pretty much this is a pretty different conversation that we're having about the game. Yes, I would be sitting here still pointing out where Pitt went wrong, pointing out probably that it shouldn't have been as close of a game as it was had Pitt won, but everybody would be much better off and much more positive about the Panthers than you are, they are currently. Pitt would still be ranked had they beat Georgia Tech. I don't blame the committee for taking Pitt out of the top 25 when you can't beat Georgia Tech. If you can't beat Georgia Tech, 
How are you going to beat Virginia Tech? How are you going to beat Louisville or UNC, undefeated Syracuse or Duke? I mean, how is that going to happen? And I'll tell you right now, before you even try to come up with an answer, it's not. Unless something changes drastically, it's going to be a major fight for Pitt at this point to win the ACC Coastal because they dropped a game that they shouldn't have lost. And now the pressure is on Pitt as reigning Coastal champions, reigning ACC champions, to prove that last season was the start of something, to prove that Pat Narduzzi wasn't carried to that championship game of the ACC by Kenny Pickett. And it's a strong chance now that Pitt doesn't make the ACC championship game. I hope I'm wrong in saying that. I really do. But knowing how Pitt has operated this season, knowing how they have operated in the past, it's inevitable at the fact that they continue to lose games in the ACC. And you're only going to be able to lose so many games in the ACC before you're eliminated from contention of the championship game, which is why losing to Georgia Tech is a killer to the Panthers and a killer to Pat Narduzzi trying to go out there and prove that he wasn't taken to the championship game by Kenny Pickett. Narduzzi has to prove that he is the coach. And it's him who got Pitt to that ACC championship game with the help of Kenny Pickett, not him getting to that championship game and being carried by Kenny Pickett. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we return, Pittsburgh Penguins hockey as the fourth line competition continues to heat up. And also Ron Hextall trying to make some moves just before the season begins right here on the Bethany Online Radio. Just the 
are back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show looking now at the Pittsburgh Penguins. As I mentioned before the break, the fourth line competition is heating up. Of course, there's a handful of guys that are in the running. Everybody knows at this point that Teddy Bluger will be centering the line. It's just a matter of who is on each of his wings, whether it's Josh Archibald, Drew O'Connor, Sam Pauline, Brock McGinn, or Ryan Pelling. McGinn, given the fact that he was there last year, I think McGinn is pretty much a guarantee to be on the roster, on the fourth line. So at that point, then, you're narrowed down to Archibald, Pelling, O'Connor, Pauline. And now... That makes things difficult because Drew O'Connor, Sam Pauline, very much deserve to be on the roster. They have done very well in training camp, done very well in preseason. And to be quite frank, this Penguins team needs to get younger. This is one of the older teams in the league now. With the core of Crosby, Malkin, and Latang not getting any younger. Even players like Gensel and Rust starting to get a bit older. I mean, this is a Penguins team that could use some youth with Pauline, with O'Connor. But it doesn't seem like they're going to be given an initial crack at the roster. So at this point, it's mainly down to a two-horse race between Josh Archibald and Ryan Pelling. Pelling came over to the Penguins from Montreal in the Matheson trade along with Jeff Petrie. And at that point, it was pretty strong indication that Pelling would be a bottom six forward for the Penguins, but that he would get into the lineup and thrive in a role with Pittsburgh. However, now it's not even a guarantee he makes the roster. So then what? Do you try and force him through waivers? Or are you just going to make him a healthy scratch? And that's a question now for Ron Hextall and Mike Sullivan. Because it seems like between Pelling and Archibald, Mike Sullivan is preferring Josh Archibald because of his speed and what Sullivan thinks he can bring to the table. Now, I'm not going to go out there completely and say that I disagree with Mike Sullivan because Mike Sullivan, despite a lot of doubts, has been able to go out there and prove time and time again that he knows what he's doing, and he is managing his team well. However, I don't necessarily think Josh Archibald is going to take this team to the next level. And that's not only on Mike Sullivan for trying to incorporate him into the lineup, that's also on... Ron Hextall for even going out and bringing in 
Josh Archibald. Why bring in Archibald when he hasn't really done much in his career? I understand at the time Pelling wasn't on the roster. You didn't know you were going to get Pelling and Petrie in return for Matheson. But Josh Archibald is 30 years old, has 71 career points in 243 games, 39 goals, 32 assists. Even if you add all those together with the 71 points, he's scoring essentially three points every 10 games. And for a bottom six guy, those aren't necessarily bad numbers. But again, why do the Penguins want someone like that on the team? Josh Archibald isn't going to do anything more than what Evan Rodriguez did last year. And Evan Rodriguez was younger and Mike Sullivan's Swiss Army knife because he could play anywhere on a line. You need him at left wing, he's there. You need an extra center, he can do that. Oh, we got a right winger down at the last minute? Throw Erod there too. He can do it all. And now you lose that versatility with not having Erod and bring in Josh Archibald, who is just going to try and hope that he can do the same thing Erod did. But now that you have Pelling, it doesn't make any sense to play Archibald. And it's a similar scenario. Archibald is 30. Pelling is 23. Why not try to get younger? Why not try to incorporate some of these young guys and show the league that while Crosby, Malkin, and Latang are getting older, that this is still a Penguins team that's going to stick around for years to come because of guys like Pooling, like Pelling, and then throw in the Drew O'Connors along with Sam Pauline, who will be up sooner, sooner rather than later. So, again, at that point, it just doesn't make sense to me from a management perspective. And then you have Ron Hextall trying to trade P.O. Joseph. Now, I recognize that they brought in Ty Smith from the Devils in place of John Marino. And Ty Smith, for the most part, has done very well in camp and in the preseason games. So in that regard, you have a young left-handed defenseman who is 22 years old. P.O. Joseph hasn't necessarily proven himself to make the roster and is older than Ty Smith. So knowing the fact that Joseph can't just be sent to Wilkes-Barre without having to clear waivers, I get why Hextall wants to try and trade him. However, the Penguins have quite a handful of defenders. Dumoulin, Friedman, Joseph Latang, Petrie, Matheson, 
Ruedel Ruda Smith, nine. And no moves have been made with any of those nine so far. And the season starts very soon. So I would imagine that if Ron Hextall doesn't start getting some decent trade offers for P.O. Joseph, he's going to put him on waivers. I hate to say it. I don't want to see it happen. But it's more than likely going to happen. He's either going to be traded or put on waivers, one of the two. The same thing's probably going to happen with Chad Ruedel. Because while Ruedel has been serviceable for the Penguins, he's not anything stellar. He hasn't emerged as more than a third-pairing defenseman on the right side. And he's 32 years old. So that's two of the three defensemen gone at the very least you would try to get down to. And the Penguins at that point, they might just stop after moving Joseph and moving Ruedel because then that leaves them with seven defensemen and you just make Mark Friedman a healthy scratch much like he was last season and use him when needed. If those are the two moves the Penguins make with Joseph and Ruedel, then that's fine. I would totally understand it. I would agree with those decisions. Well, I would agree with the Ruedel decision. I think P.O. Joseph should get more opportunities to try and make the roster. But then it's a question of at whose expense. Because you're not moving on from Dumoulin, despite his performances being lackluster. Friedman's not going anywhere because he can play on the left and the right. Latang, no, absolutely not. Petrie, you just brought him in from Montreal. He's not going anywhere. Jan Ruda, you just signed him from Tampa Bay. He's not going anywhere. Ty Smith just brought it over in a trade with the Devils. Not moving. So if you don't move on from P.O. Joseph, the only other one that you could even afford to move would be Marcus Pedersen. Pedersen has had moments of success, has had moments where he hasn't necessarily looked the best. But then the question becomes, are you even going to find a trade partner for Marquis Pedersen? Because P.O. Joseph is younger, hasn't necessarily proven himself yet. There's a lot of uncertainty around him, but he's only 23 years old. So you might have a team that's willing to take a chance on P.O. Joseph, given his age, given that he hasn't proven himself, Whereas everybody knows what Marcus Pedersen is at 26 in a main veteran on the Penguins defensive core. You know what Marcus Pedersen is going to bring to the table. So if a team wanted Marcus Pedersen, they would have traded for him in the offseason. And this wouldn't even be a conversation right now. So the fact that Pedersen is still here says a lot about the fact that maybe teams didn't want Pedersen and that would be why P.O. Joseph is more enticing. There's a lot to plan out as far as that fourth line, as far as the moves for defensemen to this point. Ron Hextall certainly has his hands full and it's going to be interesting to see how it all unfolds heading into the regular season. We'll step aside here on the Three Rivers Talk Show when we return one final segment 
focusing in on the Pittsburgh Steelers as the Kenny Pickett era officially begins and also looking at the defense really needing to step up starting this week in Buffalo right here on the Bethany Online Radio. Here on the Three Rivers Talk Show, one final segment today looking at the Pittsburgh Steelers as the Kenny Pickett era has officially begun in Pittsburgh. It only took three and a half weeks, Mike Tomlin making the change 
at halftime of the Jets game going to Kenny Pickett after the Steelers offense put up just a mere six points on the Jets defense. Now, this was the game where a lot of Steelers fans anticipated Pickett to start. Not just because it's the Jets, not because of how Trubisky played in weeks one through three, but the fact that there were 10 days between when the Steelers lost to Cleveland on Thursday night football and when they took on the Jets last Sunday. So there would have been plenty of time for Pickett to adjust and get acclimated to the first team reps. But that didn't happen. Pickett came right out post game and said that he didn't take a single first team rep between the Browns and the Jets game. It was all Trubisky. So that right there is shocking that Mike Tomlin even made the change with Pickett at halftime. I was honestly expecting Trubisky to go out there in the second half. And I had the TV on. I'm sitting there watching the game. And CBS goes to a commercial just before the Steelers drive begins. And there's Pickett out on the field with the helmet on. And I was like, wait a second. Tomlin went to Pickett? Of course, Kenny Pickett played very well. But it was a very shocking decision. And one that I don't think, while people wanted it to happen, I don't think it was a decision that many were expecting to be made at that given point because of the way that Tomlin has really stood by Mitch Trubisky and has continued to stand by Mitch Trubisky since the decision was made. I find it very interesting after the game where reporters were talking to Mitch Trubisky and his answers were very short and very brief as if he didn't want to be there. You know, I get it's not easy being a starting quarterback and getting benched. But similarly to what I said about Najee Harris, and I'll say the same now to Mitch Trubisky, just because you couldn't do your job and do it well doesn't mean you have to be ruthless and rude to the reporters trying to do their job. And first of all, Trubisky has been in the league long enough to know that the starting quarterback always has to talk to the media after the game. Trubisky has been in the league long enough to know that he's going to be swarmed when he got he got benched. He saw it firsthand in Chicago with Mike Glennon because the Bears benched Glennon to go to Trubisky. Interestingly enough, it was five years ago from Sunday, last Sunday, that Trubisky got benched by Pickett 
Five years prior, he was entering the game when the Bears benched Mike Glennon. So Trubisky is very much aware of all of this. And I get that it's frustrating and upsetting to get benched. But take your frustrations out somewhere else, man. And Mike Tomlin, in his press conference Tuesday, fully admitted that he was considering turning back to Mitch Trubisky because of his familiarity with Buffalo. And while I understand the thought process there behind what Mike Tomlin was thinking, it's not like Trubisky has gone out and led the Steelers to 25, 30 points a game, and they might need to steal a drive or two against Buffalo to come out on top. This Steelers offense, the three games Trubisky led it, were pathetic. Even if Trubisky was familiar with Buffalo, which he is, and went out there and started, that's not changing anything because Trubisky hadn't done well with the offense. So I respect that Mike Tomlin made the decision to stick with Kenny Pickett. And Kenny Pickett is going to have his hands full in his first career start, a game up in Buffalo with an atmosphere that's going to be very wild against a very talented Bills team, both offensively and defensively. But if you think about it, there are several quarterbacks who have been in Pickett's shoes. Ben Roethlisberger being one of them. Ben's first start as a rookie came against the number one ranked defense in the NFL. And I'm one of those people that I don't like all of the comparisons between Ben and Pickett. And I'm not saying that just because that's similar doesn't mean that means that Pickett's going to end up exactly like Ben. I'm not trying to compare Pickett to Ben. I need we all need to let Kenny Pickett be Kenny Pickett. But the fact that Ben's first start in the NFL was against the number one ranked defense in the league, and we saw how his career turned out. There's optimism and hope that Kenny Pickett's is going to be much of the same. And Pickett led the offense well in the second half. Two scoring drives, two rushing touchdowns of his own, but he did well. He led the offense. They looked lively. Pickett was taking shots down the field, over the middle of the field. The offense looked much more dynamic, and that's what everybody has been wanting to see to this point when Trubisky led the offense, but it wasn't there. And what really is interesting, and Mike Tomlin was very quick to shut this down Tuesday. A few weeks back, Mitch Trubisky was asked whether or not he had the freedom to call audibles at the line of scrimmage. And he said no. Kenny Pickett, after the Jets game, 
ask the same question. Did you have the freedom to make an audible call at the line of scrimmage? And Pickett said yes. Of course, Mike Tomlin shut it down in the blink of an eye and was very snippy with his answer in that regard. But that right there tells the entire story from the Steelers in that they felt Pickett was the better quarterback the entire time. They were more confident in Pickett's ability to run the offense. Matt Canada trusted Kenny Pickett more than he trusted Mitch Trubisky. And the only reason they went with Trubisky for the first three weeks was because they wanted to respect the fact that Trubisky was a veteran, had been in the league, and wanted to give him the first crack at being a quarterback. And the change was made sooner than what they were expecting it to be made. That's the only thing that can be taken from that conversation. I don't care that Mike Tomlin shut it down because I wouldn't expect anything different. If Tomlin came out and said that it was true, then that right there is basically Tomlin admitting they didn't trust Trubisky. Of course, we have that idea now, but Tomlin is never going to come right out and say that he doesn't trust a quarterback. Although he did take a pretty big shot at Gunnar Olcheski because Olcheski has now muffed two punts in as many weeks. So I wouldn't be surprised if Steven Sims doesn't get some punt return opportunities for the Steelers Sunday against Buffalo. But as we mentioned earlier in the show, when we were discussing the NFL as a whole, Dylan and myself, the Steelers defense is getting reinforcements this week. Of course, Hayward, Fitzpatrick, good to go as expected. Levi Wallace is returning. So that'll help the secondary. And to correct an earlier statement, Akella Witherspoon was out last week. He is out again this week. So the Steelers are still without one member of the secondary in Akella Witherspoon, but getting one back in in Levi Wallace is going to certainly be beneficial. Now, the Steelers' defense has to start making plays. They have to start pressuring opposing quarterbacks. This team cannot rely on T.J. Watt to make every single play in terms of sacking the quarterback, be responsible for each of the players on the defense getting defensive pressures. That just cannot happen where this defense goes through T.J. Watt. I understand Watt is the most elite player on the defense, but he shouldn't be carrying them. When you go back and look at the stats from the Bengals game, the Pittsburgh Steelers defense had seven sacks, and in that game, 11 hits on Joe Burrow. You look at week two against New England, first game without T.J. Watt. Zero sacks, three hits on Mac Jones. Against Jacoby Brissett and the Browns, two sacks, four QB hits. Last week, 
against Zach Wilson and the Jets. One sack, six QB hits. So a slight uptick there in QB hits on Zach Wilson. But the sacks are still hard to come by. The Steelers' defense isn't getting in the quarterback's face enough, which is giving them more time to make plays, which is why the Steelers' defense can't get off the field. And if you can't get off the field, you're going to give up points. And if you're giving up points, it's making it more difficult for your offense, which, when it was led by Mitch Trubisky, struggled as it was, much less when you're down. And it goes from bad to worse. And things just continue to multiply as far as problems. That's exactly what happened the first three and a half weeks and even four weeks. The only difference being is that the last half of the Jets game, the offense looked better because Kenny Pickett was running it. And I want to be clear. While Mitch Trubisky was a problem for the Steelers offensively, he was not the entire problem. Mitch Trubisky had his faults. Mitch Trubisky had his struggles. But there was a lot more going on with the offense. <coughs> because Najee Harris was not performing the way that he should have been, and to an extent still isn't. The offensive line, while it's gotten better each and every week, it started off basically as bad as last year for Trubisky. Matt Canada's play calling has gotten better each week, but started off extremely bad for Mitch Trubisky. So, as I said already, while Trubisky was part of the problem, he was thrown under the bus and basically told to make do with what he had. I know the narrative is going to be this season. If the Steelers do well, whether they make the playoffs or not, if they do well, the narrative around the Steelers this year is going to be that Kenny Pickett came in and saved the season. If the Steelers don't do well, it's going to be, well, Pickett was a rookie. He didn't even play the first three and a half games because of Trubisky. We're not worried about it. That's how this Steelers fan base is. That's going to be how they react. And it's not at all accurate. You can't say Pickett saves the season if things go well and then chalk it up like it's nothing if the season goes downhill. I'm not saying give up on Kenny Pickett either. Absolutely not. If the season goes bad, you don't give up on Kenny Pickett. But the minute Kenny Pickett was drafted, this Steelers fan base was extremely biased towards him because he went to Pitt. If it was Matt Corral, if it was Desmond Ritter, Malik Willis, who the Steelers drafted, not even in the first round. If it was any of those guys that the Steelers drafted, the fan base might be pushing for the rookie to start, but they wouldn't be as passionate about it as they are with Pickett. And they wouldn't be on the picket bandwagon. They wouldn't be on the bandwagon, I should say, like they are on the Kenny Pickett bandwagon.
because of the fact that they wouldn't be from the local college, whereas Pickett is. I want Pickett to succeed. I absolutely do. I want him to do very well. I want him to be the quarterback of the future. But there are some people who think that Kenny Pickett is right up there next to God in that he can do no wrong. Kenny Pickett is human. Kenny Pickett can, will, and has made mistakes already. And yes, he has the potential to be the franchise quarterback. But can we stop holding him in the same light as God? Because Kenny Pickett is not God. And that's the truth. Kenny Pickett is good. He has yet to prove himself in the league, much less to be held next to God. You've been listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. I thank you all for tuning in here on this cloudy Friday afternoon here in Bethany, West Virginia. Be sure to tune in next Friday at 2 o'clock once again for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh Pirates, and more. Drew Von Sayo signing off. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, everybody.